Thanks for joining us today at Divine Church. We are one church with two locations, reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ, and you can partner with us by sharing this video or clicking the Give link below. For now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message. And I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a
We're going to sing a new song this morning. It's called Sea of Victory. It just says this, that though our circumstances fail, God never does. So sing this with me. The weapon may be formed.
declare that. I'm going to see your victory. I'm going to see your victory. Well, how are you, church? Good. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you this morning. For those of you I haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, my name's Andrew Irwin, and I get to be one of the pastors here at the Vine Church. And I'm excited to be with you as we jump back into our message series called The Church. And if you're just joining us for this series, I want to quickly catch you up. In this series, what we've been doing is we've been taking a look at Jesus's original design for the church. And what we've learned is that Jesus's idea for the church is sometimes different from our idea to the church. And if there's a competition between our idea of church and Jesus's, we really should go with Jesus's idea of the church because he thought the church up. And what we've discovered over the past couple of weeks is that when we mess that balance up and we, we tilt more towards our idea of church than Jesus's, we get things out of balance, which is why sometimes the church that was designed to be an unstoppable movement, it can easily become an unmovable monument, right? And we have some people who think of the church in, in ways that really aren't healthy or, or the ways that Jesus designed the church to be. We, we think of it as a building with brick and mortar, when in all reality, it's a body with many parts and many members that make up a single body. And what we're going to talk about today is the fact that the church, it doesn't belong. It doesn't belong to you and it doesn't belong to me because the church has always been and will always be Jesus's church. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the church is the bride of Christ. And I wanna, have an I wanna have a disclaimer up front, because when I say that the church is the bride of Christ, a lot of guys get real, real weird, right? This is the part of the message where guys stop looking at me, like they, they start looking down, they get real uncomfortable with this idea that I just said they're part of the bride of Christ. Listen, I'm, I'm gonna invite all the men in the room who are married or one day hope to be married to lock in for just a second. Because listen, the passage of scripture we're gonna read this morning is going to challenge you to love more fiercely than you've ever loved before. So hang with me, guys. And if you're here this morning 
And the idea of talking about, about a metaphor of Jesus being a groom and the church being a bride, that makes you uncomfortable because maybe you've had a tough marriage or maybe you're in a tough season in your marriage. And so this idea might just really stir some emotions up in you. I just want you to hear this. Even if you're going through a difficult season in your personal marriage, it doesn't change the beauty and majesty of the idea that God Almighty (laughs) desires you the way a groom desires his bride. That's such a beautiful concept. And I I personally am the kind of guy who like, I find weddings to be absolutely beautiful, which is why early in my ministry, anytime I was asked to do a wedding, I always said yes. It didn't matter what the circumstances or situations was. If I was being asked to officiate a wedding, I would say yes. But one of the things they didn't tell you, didn't teach me in seminary was that like when you do a wedding, it is live theater and you never actually know what's gonna happen. I remember one of my very first weddings, um, I I said yes to this couple who I knew just a little bit. It was kind of like a friend of a friend of a friend kind of situation. And so I knew him a little bit and I said, yeah, I'll I'll be the officiant of your ceremony. And they're like, great. It's gonna be right in the middle of July at an outdoor venue midday. And here's the thing. We really think it would be great if you would wear your extra heavy, super hot black preacher's robe to perform this wedding. And I was like, okay, that... That will be fine, I think. And so I remember showing up at this venue and I was like, this was, this was a big mistake. Like it was one of those, like by the time I got out of my car, I was already sweating, you know what I mean? And so by the time you've gone through like, the, like making sure everybody's in place and knows what they're doing and pictures have been taken and stuff, I'm like dripping sweat. And like, I'm like toweling off, I'm doing everything I can to try to not look ridiculous in this wedding. And I remember the groom and I kind of took our place. We walked out together. We were the first ones out there and we took our place right in the, right in the center of the venue, right where we were supposed to be. And then it was time for the, the grandmas to walk, eh, shuffle, shuffle. <laughs> the grandmas to shuffle on out. And there was a lot of them. This was a family with a lot of divorces in it. So there was like a lot of grandmas, right? I mean, and they were all like, getting into place. And then it was time for the moms and the moms didn't all like each other. And so there was like a competition to see who could have the spotlight on them the longest. And so they were taking their sweet time, sauntering in, finally get into place. And then we get the bridesmaids and, the, and they're being escorted by the groomsmen and they finally get into place. And finally, I'm ready to have everybody stand up because it's time to get the bride in here so we can get this thing going, right? Like I am ready. So I stand everybody up. The bridal march begins and we have no bride. The bride does not walk down the aisle. And with each passing note of the bridal march, the groom freaks out a little more. And at one point I reach over, I put my hand on his shoulder and I say, it's it's okay, man. I know she's going to come soon. She didn't come soon. In fact, we got to the very end of the song and there was no bride in sight. So I seated everybody and thankfully was able to make eye contact with my wife who was in attendance of the wedding. And, and you know how you can, you can make one of those like, mm-hmm. so I did one of those very casually. Mm-hmm. And she got up and she went and she found the bride who was freaking out in the back of the venue. And she was upset because her dad hadn't showed up on time, which clearly meant that he wasn't worthy to walk her down the aisle, but her dad was supposed to walk her down the aisle. And she was having a moment and Kristen, I don't know what she said. And she worked some magic and got that bride walking down the aisle, right? And I'm glad she did because when finally the bride came down the aisle with her dad, arm in arm, they got up to me. 
I, I looked down to read my opening lines and realized I had sweated so much that I could no longer read my notes. So when they got into place, that ceremony went quick. Do you? Do you? We're good. I mean, it was, it was a quick ceremony. And what's hilarious to me is when I think back upon this wedding, like I don't think about all the craziness or all the drama that took place. Like my first thought when I think about that wedding was how beautiful the bride was when she finally got herself down the aisle. She was beautiful. In fact, when I think about every wedding I've ever been blessed to be able to officiate, I always think first about how beautiful the bride is. And it's not because of the dress she finally said yes to. It's not because she did her hair up or she did her hair down or the venue where we're we're having this wedding. It's just because there's something unbelievably beautiful about a bride who's done everything she can to be as spotless and pure for the man that she wants to spend the rest of her life loving above everybody else. There's something that is so unbelievably moving about that to me, which is why I, I, find, like, I find it incredible to think that Jesus gives us this analogy of him being a groom and the church being his bride. And we're actually going to see how that plays itself out in our first scripture this morning. And I say first scripture because this is one of those mornings that if you grew up in church and you did some Bible sword drills, you're going to thrive today because we're going to be doing some flipping through scriptures. If you're here this morning and you don't know what a sword drill is, find somebody who went to Sunday school and they will tell you all about it. There was flannel graphs and a lot of flipping through the Bible, okay? So just go ahead and open with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin reading with verse 25 and go all the way through verse 27. But before we do that, I wanna give you just a little bit of context on Ephesians. So Ephesians is actually a letter that was written by a pastor named Paul to a church in the city of Ephesus. And Paul was writing to this city and he was letting them know about the depth of love that Jesus has for his church, which is pretty cool when you think about it because Paul was a pastor who loved this church. And what he does is he says that his love for the church doesn't compare to the love that Jesus has for the church. And you can actually read about Paul's time in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, but he spent over two years loving these people there. And then when he moved on to go start other churches in other cities, what he would do is he would write letters back. And the letter that we actually have contained in the Bible was a letter that he wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome towards the very end of his life. And so this is something that mattered enough to him that at the end of his life, he really wanted the beloved people in Ephesus to hear. So let's, let's hear what he writes to the people in Ephesus. Picking up with Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Man, I, I love this passage because Paul, who is the founding pastor of the church in Ephesus, he, he's making it clear that the church was never his, ever. The church always belonged to Jesus and will always belong to Jesus, regardless of who founded it, who's currently leading it, who the worship leader is, who's on staff, who the lay leaders are. It doesn't really matter who any of us are because the church will always belong to Jesus. Can I get an amen? And here's why this matters to me. 
I think a lot of times because we recognize that church belongs to Jesus, here's the way we think. We think, okay, well, that means that the church kind of exists a lot like a piece of property or a building on a piece of property. And Jesus is kind of like the land owner. Like he holds the deed. So that's why the church belongs to him. But we learned last week that the church isn't a building. It's a body. So it doesn't exist quite like that. And it's not as if the church belongs to Jesus, sort of like a corporation belongs to its owner because they have 50% of the stocks plus one, right? It's not one of those situations where he happens to have the most shares or the most stake in the company. And that's why the church belongs to him. The church belongs to Jesus, not in those terms, but more in the terms of how a bride belongs to a groom. And I love that. Because the way a bride belongs to a groom is because two people have committed to love one another above everybody else on the planet for the rest of their lives. And they've done so because they know that without one another, their hearts will never be fully satisfied. That they have chosen one another above every other option that was presented to them. And they're foregoing everyone else for the sake of one another. And I think that's just such an, a beautiful idea. And I wish I could say that, that Paul was the only one who had thought of this way of viewing Jesus as a groom, but it, he's not. In fact, John the Baptist also views Jesus in these very same terms. In fact, in John chapter three, you get this really interesting exchange where, where somebody approaches John the Baptist. And, and by the way, if you have a nickname based on something that you do really well, it's kind of a bummer when people look to somebody else to do the thing that you're nicknamed based on. So let me, let me play this out for you. Somebody comes to John the Baptist and says, hey, John, how do you feel about the fact that you, your ministry that at one time was like this is now going like this? Because people aren't coming to be baptized by you anymore. They're now coming to be baptized by Jesus and his disciples. Now, keep in mind, this is John the Baptist nicknamed for baptizing people who now has somebody else who's baptizing more people than he is. And so you think he might, he might be upset about this, but John understands who Jesus is and refuses to lay claim to his bride. This is how he responds in John chapter three, verses 28 and 29. John answered, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You get the sense that John the Baptist understands that he's much more like a groomsman. He has the honor of standing up next to Jesus and hear the groom's voice. And he can rejoice and be glad for Jesus and his bride. But it's not his bride. It's not John's it's not his at all. And so th this is the part of the message where some of you might be going, okay, so Paul and John the Baptist both kind of use this language of Jesus as a groom and the church as a bride, but there's a lot of other analogies in the scriptures for the church. Can, can we just kind of skip over this? Like, like this is kind of making some of the guys maybe a little squirmish. Like, oh, do we really have to use this bride of Christ language? Y you might could get away with overlooking this language if it if you wanted to write off Paul, if you wanted to write off John the Baptist, but, but here's the thing. Jesus uses this same language to describe himself. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter nine, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they, then they will fast. Now, bridegroom is just is a longer way of saying the groom. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm, I'm the groom. My disciples can't fast while I'm still here. They'll eventually fast, but the groom is still with them. He's letting us know that that's the way he views himself, that he sees himself as a good groom. So what does that mean for us? I think it means that we need to start thinking about Jesus slightly differently. See, most of us, if you have a relationship with Jesus, have, have some sort of verbiage for him, right? Like you, when you think of Jesus, you, you maybe think of some of the scriptures that, that kind of tell descriptions of him. Like we think of him as the savior, as the Messiah, as the Lord of Lords, as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, as the sacrificial lamb. And the list could go on and on and on of all the ways that you could describe Jesus. Which is why for me, I just default to king. He's king Jesus. But it's not enough. It's not enough just to think of him as King Jesus. He's a betrothed, or in our modern language, engaged king. He's an engaged king. And, and I know this can get tricky because in, in our minds, when we hear engaged, like we know that process, right? Like typically you have a young man who scratches together as much money as he can possibly get. And then he goes and buys the biggest and best ring he can possibly afford, right? Like he goes through that process. And then as soon as he gets the ring, like he has to really fight the urge to give it to the bride right away. Because ladies, you don't know this, but as soon as you bought an engagement ring, you want to give it immediately, but you can't because you have to make sure that it, the timing is just right, which is why that ring burns a hole in your pocket for a season, right? And then when the moment is there and you've planned appropriately, you look into, you look into that woman's eyes and you get down on one knee and you say, will you marry me, right? Like that is our modern idea of what engagement looks like. Problem is, that's not what engagement looked like 2000 years ago in the Middle East. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through engagement or betrothal from Jesus's time so that you get a sense of what it would have been like in that era, okay? So let's go and put this on the screen to make it a little bit easier as we track along. So here's the process of betrothal. It begins with a dowry being paid, as all good romance stories do, right? I mean, it's not, it's not really, really interesting until the dowry is taken care of, right? I mean, that's, that's where we get all of our good storylines. No, a dowry in our modern language would have been a payment. It's a payment that would have been made by the groom's father to the bride's father. And what's interesting is there would have been a like, they would have had kind of negotiations where they would have come to terms. And a lot of times we think of those in terms of, you know, compensation of money, but it's not like they could have gone to the bank in this era, right? So a lot of times the dowry was actually done in, in things like crops or cattle, which means that, you know, the father of the groom could have negotiated a dowry price of, you know, a couple camels and a few goats in order to have that, that bride come into his family. I think that would make Thanksgiving a little interesting. Here's the girl we got for a couple camels and a few goats. Her brother's bride was way more expensive. It, it cost us like some cows in there, right? Like, I mean, like, it's just an interesting dynamic to think that this begins with a negotiation between the dads over what the bride is actually worth to the incoming family. But after that part of the equation is over, then you would have gotten to this place where the groom then goes to his bride-to-be and he offers her 
a drink of wine. And he would have said to her, this cup represents a new covenant in blood. That's what he would have said. And if she was ready to accept that new covenant in blood, she would then drink from the cup. And after that cup was drinking from, it would not be drinking from again. So the cup would then be reserved for the wedding. It would be reserved for the wedding until the wedding night. In fact, once they were husband and wife would be the next time they would drink from that same cup again. And then after that, they would depart. The groom would actually return to his father's home. And the reason he was returning to his father's home was so that he could actually build onto his dad's house. He was gonna build like an extra room, an extra living area for where the new bride and the new groom were going to begin their married life together, which I can tell who has good relationships with their in-laws and who doesn't because those of you without good relationships are cringing right now at the idea of living in an attached home to your in-laws right now. But that's how it would have been done. And then the father is actually the one who decides when the groom can return for the bride because he would have been looking over the groom's shoulder throughout the construction process. And until he was completely satisfied with the groom's handiwork, he would have said, nope, not yet. In fact, when people would have come and talked to the groom and said, hey, when is your wedding gonna be? The standard response would have been, only my father knows. Now, those of you who have been in church a little while are probably beginning to put the pieces together that Jesus actually came to fulfill each and every one of these steps of betrothal to his bride, the church. And some of you are going, really? Yeah, every single one of these. In fact, we're gonna start, just kind of walk through. Think about the cup of wine that is offered, right? You have this cup of wine offered that Jesus offered on the very night before the cross. He gathered his closest friends, his followers, the disciples together. And he said, hey guys, listen, I wanna offer you this. And these are the exact words according to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. 25. It says this, in the same way also he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The same language that would have been used between a bride and a groom. And then you're going, well, did, does that mean there was a gap then that this cup was then reserved for after the wedding? Exactly. Listen to these words from Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And the reason he says in my father's kingdom is because in this metaphor of the groom being Jesus and the church being the bride, well, the wedding would begin when Jesus returns and ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not gonna drink from this same cup that we share together until I drink it in the fullness of my father's kingdom, until I've returned. And so some of you might be going, okay, that, all right, the cup's kind of interesting. I'm not sure I totally buy this, da- this whole like, business about Jesus being a groom. Hang with me, listen to this. The next step in the betrothal process would have been a split between the bride and the groom, right? the groom would have had to return to his father's house. Listen to these words that Jesus shares with us from John chapter 14. This is what he says. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying, just like a groom goes to prepare a place, He's going to prepare a place for every single person who is a part of his bride, the church. He's preparing a place for you. 
And when the disciples would ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, when are you gonna come back and take us to be where you are? Listen to Jesus's response in Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Listen, Jesus came to get engaged to his bride, the church. He's followed each and every one of the steps. But some of you are going, whoa, whoa, whoa. but you skipped one. You, you skipped the dowry. You're right, we did. And it's not because there wasn't a dowry, there was. It's because it's important to recognize how significant the dowry truly is. See, the dowry that Jesus is, that Jesus' father had to pay, it was incredibly steep. In fact, we read about it in John chapter three, verse 16, when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's that verse that you see recited all over the world at sporting events and arenas and outside with people holding up signs. It was pointing to the dowry that God the Father paid so that we, the church, could be with him forever. This is astounding to me. It's astounding because when I think about that, I become overwhelmed with my unworthiness. Like I begin thinking about all the ways in which I do not deserve to be a part of, of the bride of Christ. Like, I, I, like Jesus is completely sinless. He's spotless. He's clean. He's holy as the Lord, his God is holy. And yet here I am. I am broken and messed up and flawed and have failures. And I've done all these things that I would hate for anybody to ever find out about because I'm so embarrassed by them. And yet here I have Jesus telling me that I am somehow worthy of being in his church, the church, not just on earth, but the church forevermore in eternity. It doesn't even make sense. And my guess is some of you are feeling the same way. You came in here thinking that there's no way you could ever, ever belong to God. You're too broken. You're too far gone. Listen, I, I wanna be real clear with you this morning. There's no such thing as too far gone in God's kingdom because the work of being made whole and even holy it's not your work. It's the work of Jesus. Let's go back to our original scripture from Ephesians chapter five, verse 25. It says this, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So guys, those of you who didn't want to tune into this message, listen, your job is to love your wife as fiercely as Jesus loves his church to the point of being willing to die on a cross. That's how you love your spouse. Listen, and Jesus gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Now, sanctify is a super churchy sounding word, isn't it? It just means to make holy. That's it. So that Jesus can make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to who? To himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And here's the problem. When a lot of you read that, you go, <laughs> I've got so many spots and blemishes. There's no way I could ever be presented to God. But when you think that, you overlook the truth that it's not your job to take care of the spots or the blemishes. It's Jesus's. That's why he died on a cross so that you could be made right, so that you could be forgiven, 
so that you could be made whole and even holy. That's what Jesus does in you. And for those of you who, who rolled up here this morning, who got to church and maybe you just barely made it here and you weren't even sure why you came because you just don't feel like you're good enough to even be in the presence of the Lord. You feel like you're just, you can't even forget the things that you've done wrong because they're so big and they're so bad. Listen, I, I, just, I just want you to hear this. The love that Jesus has for you is unconditional which when you break it down means that there's no conditions, there's no strings attached. It doesn't mean that you need to come to him all cleaned up, put together with your life in order. It means you can come to him broken, falling apart with your life a mess. And he doesn't love you any more or any less. You don't get to decide how much God loves you. He's already decided he loves you. All you've got to do is receive it. And for some of you, that's a challenge. And I get that. But there's a woman named Joni Erickson Tata who helped me kind of overcome this thinking in myself. See, if, some of you might be familiar with the name Joni Erickson Tata because she is pretty famous at this point. We have a picture of her we'll put up on the screens. Joni was involved in a diving accident when she was 17 years old that left her as a quadriplegic. And for many people, that would have been too much to overcome. Like that would have been the defining moment of their life and their life would have been over as they knew it. All their hopes and dreams would have vanished. But that's not the way Joni viewed it. She viewed it as a unique opportunity to see the world from a different vantage and to help more people than she ever dreamed possible. See, Joni went on to become one of the leading advocates for families who have someone in their family with disabilities. She actually wrote her own autobiography that sold over 5 million copies and became an international bestseller. And what I love about Joni is she just, she just gives herself away and shares her story with everybody around her. And one of, the, one of my favorite stories that she tells is of her wedding. See, leading up to her wedding, as a little girl, she had always thought that her wedding would look a certain way, which is why getting ready for her wedding looked a little bit different than she ever imagined. Now, I'm gonna read to you her own words about her wedding. She said, I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corseting and binding my body gave me a good shape. The dress just didn't fit. Then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of the dress, leaving a greasy tire mark on my wedding dress. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off center on my lap and my chair, though decorated for the wedding was still a big clunky gray machine with belts, gears, and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a wedding magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew, hoping to catch a glimpse of Ken, my groom, in front. There he was, standing tall and stately in his formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle, and my face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I knew I was his radiant bride. Church, I don't know how you walked in feeling today, but I want you to know this. You are part of the beloved bride 
of Christ. Which means that you couldn't be any more loved than you are right now. The passion of our Savior.